If you have your copy of the scripture, would you take it out now and turn with me in the gospel according to John, the 15th chapter. We're looking this morning at verses 17 to 25. This is the upper room discourse in which the Lord Jesus conveys some of the thoughts and concerns that he has for his disciples in the coming hour when he will be removed from him, from them physically. And when in the coming ages he reigns on high and manifests his presence by his Holy Spirit. And so the Lord Jesus is being quite purposeful in what he has said thus far. At verse 11, you may note that the Savior speaks so that his joy may be in the disciples and that his disciples likewise may have the fullness of joy at verse 11. And then in verse 17, which begins our passage this morning, the Savior speaks, he gives commands so his disciples will love one another. And so here in these, this section in particular is a warning for potential disciples and a warning for all disciples that following the Lord Jesus Christ is no small or easy thing, but is a path of great cost. Cost not to earn our salvation, but because we have received something better, we give up what we formerly treasured most. But in following the Lord Jesus Christ, we are also willing to endure great and costly mistreatment, hatred by the world, by those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is something Christians do not often Understand or often fail to realize the urgency of recognizing where we are and when we are. That we live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation in which the church is to shine brightly as a light in the midst of a people and a race who hate the light because it exposes their wickedness, because the light exposes the true nature of the world's wickedness. Rosaria Butterfield in her new book describes this as knowing what time it is. That Christians must understand we live in a world that is hostile to us. So the Savior warns us here against being deceived to think that the world is our friend. Or to think we can have one foot in the world and the world's institutions and organizations. And we can play with one foot by the world's standards and rules and philosophies. And have one foot in the kingdom of God and live by true standards and rules and wisdom. Not just philosophy. And so Jesus here confronts us. You cannot compromise the truth in order to participate in the world. You cannot add the truth to the world's falsehoods. And so he says, as a result, the world will hate you because it hates me. The world hated even the one who is the most good. And the world, as we read here, hated him without cause. But God's word remains true in every age and God's people must not compromise in order to win a hearing or to participate with those who neither know God nor his word. And so we live in an age of ignorance. That's what Jesus tells us here. 
And yet, at the same time, we live in the information age, don't we? More information is available to us now with more ease than ever before. Almost anyone, almost anyone, can at least briefly sound like an expert on almost anything after spending a little time searching on the Google machine. As you can, for, I don't know, 30 seconds, you can sound like an expert on, on, on physics or medicine or uh, the science because you've read the first few paragraphs of a Wikipedia article. As you can sound like an expert. But some also decry the new abundance of information saying that Google is actually making us dumb. The abundance of information easily accessible has removed the need for people to actually know things, hasn't it? I was visiting with someone while we were on vacation whose wife had been ill for a long time, and the doctors just had no idea what the issue was, and uh, there was, and they were all young physicians, and the uh, there was an old doctor in their church who had heard of the conditions of this person. And, and he said, well, let me see the charts. And pulled up the charts and said, oh, well, this is what it is. You need to go here and you need to have this surgery. And, and, and that's what it is. But see, that doctor had had wisdom, whereas the younger doctors relied on their iPads and magic flashlights. People may have a great deal of information, but the possession of information is not knowledge any more than the possession of flour, eggs, butter, and sugar is to possess a cake. John Somerville, in the last century, argued the proliferation of news has actually had the effect of dumbing down American discourse rather than making people more informed. Socrates, millennia ago, opposed literacy and writing because it would make people forgetful. So too, the information age has actually led to less knowledgeable people. We have all sorts of information. But we have little knowledge. This is actually an age of ignorance, not information. But that's nothing new, is it? That's what Jesus says here. What Jesus suggests to us here is that far from information and knowledge or wisdom characterizing the world in our time or in any time since his coming, we actually live in an age of ignorance. And that ignorance is serious with eternal consequences. And so I want to consider four things with you this morning. Hatred by the world, living like Christ, ignorance of the world, and then fulfilling the word. You can see the outline in uh, the order of worship, if you want to use it. Before we read God's word, let's pray, asking for his help and blessing. O God in heaven, your word is truth. And in your word, you command us to seek wisdom. Wisdom calls to us. So we ask, O God, that you would enable us to find wisdom. And the only way we can find wisdom is that your Holy Spirit would speak to us in this, the word of Christ. God, would you make his word to dwell in us richly? 
that we would be conformed to the word. Bless us, strengthen us, and fill us, and get all the glory for it, because we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of John, beginning at verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and have hated both me and my father. But let the word that is written in their law be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Amen. Thus far in God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. The world is hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that hostility is transferred to his people. But the world's hostility is rooted in the bizarre ignorance of what is plainly seen by any with eyes to see. And so let's consider the hatred of the world. When last we were together in this text, we noted uh, that as much as love for the brethren, love for one another characterizes the people of God... Hatred for the people of God characterizes the world. And so God's people are distinct from the world. And it's worthy of repeating because Jesus repeats here his emphasis on our love for one another. We ought to be known as a congregation for the mutual love and concern and charity and kindness expressed to each other. We should love each other because no one else will. We should love each other because Christ has loved each of his people. But remember what we said last time we were together. That love must be defined by the contours of Christ's words. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Right? He doesn't just leave us to make up what love means. That's what our society, the society in which we live, it isn't our society, but the society in which we live, that's what it has done, hasn't it? It makes up what love means. Love is love. Right? Any second grade teacher wouldn't accept that definition. <laughs> and yet that's what our, uh, the society in which we live has done. Love is love. No, Jesus tells us, commands us, and defines love for us. And this is vitally important, as people in every age have had a tendency to want to impose their own conditions on what it means for others to love them. You parents, you you recognize this, don't you? 
Perhaps your child wants to do something, but you deny him or her permission to do it. And in a fit of rage, your child responds, well, you don't love me because you won't let me or you won't give me X. You see, the child wants to define what parental love looks like and how parental love is manifested. But you parents, you know the reason you've denied your child whatever she or he was asking you for was probably because you loved that child. That whatever he or she was asking for was not good. And sadly, we're seeing this in adults now too, aren't we? In order to be perceived as loving, we have to acquiesce to the ideas or the presumptions of others, even if those ideas and presumptions are not grounded in reality, truth, or science but instead are delusions, deceptions, or social control. Jesus' words here are very important. Christians are united in love for one another according to Jesus' words and Jesus' commands. But the world is united in its hatred of God's people. And many of us, many Christians are slow to realize this. Perhaps it's because for so many who call themselves Christians, their religion is little different from the world. And so the world doesn't recognize them as different from itself. Rick Phillips puts it this way, the world doesn't hate a false Christianity that can scarcely be distinguished from the world. The world doesn't hate a false Christianity that can't be distinguished from the world. For many, the church is little different than any other civic or social organization doing good in and to the community. But the mission of the church is unique. The mission of the church is to preach Christ, to gather the saints and to grow them in holiness by the preaching and teaching and discipling of the word in the power of the Holy Spirit. The church is the only organization instituted by God for the preaching of Christ. The church is the only institution equipped and sent by God, and those things are crucial, aren't they? The church is the only institution equipped and sent by God to proclaim the riches of God toward sinners in Christ. There are all sorts of parachurch organizations that do that to one extent or another. Some of them do it quite well. But the church is the only organization, the only institution, the only authorized organization dedicated for the sole purpose of proclaiming the riches of God towards sinners in Christ and discipling them in that grace. And so we must be very wary of something calling itself Christianity or a doctrine of the church that embraces a worldly focus. You see, so many faith communions are focused largely on civic good or being good neighbors in a civic and social sense that they have deprived their neighbors of a testimony to the highest good of all, the only good that can do them any good. 
Even in the PCA, there are congregations in which the good news of God in Christ Jesus is eclipsed by a social, a racial gospel, a false gospel that offers no good news. There are worship services that are deprived of the preaching of the good news of God in Christ Jesus and instead focus simply on asking questions or a philosophical or political discussion. I was remarking over the last week at how many, even PCA churches, have, have no sermon as a part of what they call their worship service, but have a, a discussion, a dialogue. But you know, it is not a discussion and dialogue that the Holy Spirit chooses to use as the primary means of grace to call sinners from death to life. It is the preaching of the word of God. Not a philosophical discussion. Many churches have an outreach that is not focused on calling sinners to repentance, but meeting felt needs in the community and inculcating life skills and raising up productive citizens. But none of that is the mission of the church, is it? Such a religion does no one any lasting good. And so such a Christianity, such a religion, is not the enemy of the world, but is at peace with the world. Such a religion endures no hostility from the world because it is indistinguishable from the world. Because it is not centered on Christ and what he has done and who he is and what he continues to do and what he shall do. And so the Savior warns of the cost of discipleship. With true Christianity, there's a cost. Many in this country, especially the South, think Christianity is something that you can just add to the rest of your life. To fill that empty space on a Sunday morning, if you have time. In another city, I encouraged a member of the congregation I served who had long been absent from the people of God to, to come and worship. And he promised me, I will be there when it is convenient. What a damning testimony. What a damning testimony from his own mouth, his own lips. True Christianity is not convenient. True Christianity is not about your convenience, is it? True Christianity is about worshiping and serving the God who created all things and who by his son has redeemed a people holy to himself for his own glory and his own pleasure. The scripture teaches us time and again that part of being one of God's people is submitting to his lordship over our time. In the Old Covenant, that message was conveyed by the, the Sabbath and the frequent feasts and the holidays and, and pilgrimages that interrupted life. And the people, as they allowed their lives to be interrupted by the, the, the church calendar, they were confessing that one, God is the Lord of time, and two, we believe that if we submit to his lordship in time, that the harvest won't fail, that our lands won't be raided. That God will keep his promises. And so the people testified by their following the church calendar in the Hebrew church. 
Those frequent feasts and holidays and pilgrimages. The people testified that they rested in God. Because their God was the Lord of time. Being one of God's people had a cost. You know, and you know, by the way, as you read Kings, one of the things you see is that they weren't keeping that time, were they? As you read Jeremiah, you see they weren't keeping those Sabbaths. The land would have its Sabbaths. And what happened? The Hebrew church was expelled from the land and sent back to the place where Abraham came from. Babylon. Ur. Ur of what? The Chaldeans. And now under the new covenant, Christ is still the Lord of time. And we only have one church holiday, don't we? The Lord's Day. The Christian Sabbath, around which God's people still structure their time, testifying to the world that there is nothing more important than gathering with God's people on the day of Christ's resurrection to worship him and to praise him and to thank him and to hear from him. Even as the world treats this day as Sunday fun day. Yet how many who call themselves Christians in our own community are unwilling even to bear that cost? Unwilling even to worship? But the cost of following Christ cuts deeper, doesn't it? Are you willing to be shunned socially because of the claims of Christ? That you won't conform to the expectations of the world because of the claims of Christ? Would you be willing to endure governmental harassment or harassment by your neighbors because of Christ? Some of my friends were discussing whether it's appropriate to have uh, outsiders provide music for the church. And some PCA churches, they will, and some uh, they won't. That the musicians should be a member of the church, and others, they'll bring in folks from the, the local symphony to, to play. You know, back in the 70s, I think it was, the first Orthodox Presbyterian Church of San Francisco was firebombed because they fired their organist, who was a pagan. When they came to the conclusion that we cannot have a pagan accompanying our worship. That was the 70s. You know, the golden age of Reagan was still ahead. It's real. Following Christ means not only enduring the hatred of the world, but also killing your sins, making war on your sinful desires, changing your priorities to bring them into submission to Christ and to his kingly rule. Jesus warns us here, it is not easy. And if you're not willing to bear the cost, then don't think, don't think to follow him. Because the world hates those who follow Christ. Now, by the way, he's, he's not trying to discourage anyone uh, from following him. He's encouraging those who follow him to recognize the gravity of doing so. So he speaks of, of living like Christ, but not living like Christ in the way we often think. Though, Look at what he says in verse 20. The world hated Christ first. The world is hostile to Christ. The world is hostile to his people. If the world did not receive the king of glory when he came, the world will surely hate those who follow him. 
the world will hate his servants. So we are but the master's servants. Now the last time Jesus spoke of masters and servants in this upper room discourse was in uh, chapter 13, verse 16, where he, he showed them the master, the teacher, the rabbi, God in the flesh, was not too proud to wash their feet, to serve them, and so they should not be too self-absorbed to serve each other in love. But here Jesus gives us a different application of the same principle. It's the same principle, a different application. Your reception by the world will be painfully similar to my own, he says. You will walk in Christ's footsteps. We do not go anywhere that Christ has not gone, and we do not endure anything the Lord Jesus Christ has not endured. If they persecuted me, he says, they will persecute you. And we see that a couple of times in the book of Acts, don't we? Uh, first with Stephen in chapters 6 and 7, and then with the Apostle Paul in chapters 20 and following. The Jews in Jerusalem, they treat Christ's servants exactly the way they treated Christ. What is the outcome of Christian missions? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ puts it plainly for us. If they kept my word... They will keep your word also. You know, as plainly as he puts it, it's not simple. Some people did keep Christ's word in his own, in the days of his flesh. But the vast majority of his countrymen, they rejected him. And there we see the history of Christian missions summarized. Many reject the gospel, reject the words of Christ, just as the Hebrews rejected Christ generations and millennia ago. The word of God's saving grace is offensive. The call to repentance, the call to faith is like nails on a chalkboard to a self-righteous man who only wants to be affirmed and vindicated in all his vain and passing pleasures and fancies. To a person convinced of his own inherent and basic goodness, the words repent and believe are offensive. It's popular for people to believe that most other people are basically good. But the gospel says the exact opposite. And that threatens the way the world sees itself. The call to holiness threatens the very existence of a world that is predicated on rebellion against a holy God. And so most people respond to God's gospel with hatred. And hostility. And they transfer that hatred and hostility to God's people. But some, but some, a remnant, hear the gospel. They hear the word of grace. They recognize their sinfulness. They recognize they are not basically good. And they see their urgent need of God's saving grace and turning to him in faith and repentance. They receive the promised mercy that he offers to all. And so just as a remnant of ethnic Israel in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ came to faith and repentance, so too a multitude, a remnant out of the Gentiles will hear the words of Christ, will hear his call to worship, will turn from sin and come to the Savior to buy without money and without price to receive God's abundant pardon. And so Christian, 
Don't be discouraged when you invite someone ten times to come and worship with you. And she doesn't. Or you've invited ten people and all of them are too busy with the things of this world. Don't be discouraged. Keep at them. Do not give up. Because because you turned from your sins. So too God can turn them from their sins. Be patient with them as God is patient with you. He may yet bring them to keep your word, to keep his word. Remember in in Acts chapter 6, Luke tells us that many of those same priests who condemned the Lord Jesus Christ to death, many of them even became obedient to the faith, the faith they once tried to destroy. The world's response to us will be remarkably similar to its response to our master. Now let's look at verses 21 to 24, the ignorance of the world. It is, in some ways, a surprising ignorance. We've considered three reasons Jesus gives for the world's hatred of us. Uh, One already, that that we're not of the world. The world loves its own. And we looked a couple of weeks ago at what sort of love the world has for its own. But we're not of the world, so the world does not love us. Second, the world hates Christ's name. It hates the name of Christ. Because the name of Christ, the anointed of God, conveys authority and power and rights. His rights. The world hates that name. And third, the world does not know God. And we'll consider that ignorance for a moment together. But the world's ignorance of God is surprising. Now, the apostle in Romans 1 and the Lord Jesus here in Romans 17 is not asserting they have no knowledge of God whatsoever. What Jesus is saying conforms well to what the Apostle says in Romans 1, that they suppress the knowledge they have of God. In Jesus' day, the people, the people in, immediately in view were the Jews. And what is Jesus saying about the Jews? They are ignorant of God. But the Jews were the most religious people on the planet at the time, and probably still today. I mean, not the, not the atheist ones, but the, the ones with the funny hats and the silly hair. The most religious people in the world are the Jews. And yet, what is Jesus saying? They are ignorant of God. It was the religious leaders, the the Pharisees, who stirred up the crowds in Jerusalem against the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of the Hebrews in Jesus' day had a religion, but that was a religion without God. It was a godless religion. And Jesus threatens that religion, doesn't he? They had a form of godliness, but without God. A form of godliness, but without the power. And so in that sense, their ignorance of God is surprising. But likewise, the world's ignorance of God today is surprising. We live in one of the most spiritual ages in human history. References to God, 
to divine providence, to the supreme being, are prominent in our republic's founding documents and in the constitutional documents of most states in this country. Our public buildings, our private buildings, civil discourse such as it is, is often filled with references to spiritual matters. People talk about the Lord and the power of prayer or feeling spiritual. But so much of that spiritual talk has little to do with whom? With the true and living God who reveals himself in Christ and in the scripture. What Jesus says here is that no matter how much people talk about God or how religious they are, their response to Christ reveals whether they know God or not. Consider how offensive this would be to Jesus' contemporaries, the Pharisees, who consider themselves pure. And yet Jesus says, their response to me is indicative of whether they know God or not. The world's rejection of Christ, Christ's word exposes their ignorance of God. And so it doesn't matter how many serenity prayers you recite or how many crosses you have in your garden or whether you have a coexist bumper sticker on your car or a fish. None of that matters. Jesus says your response to him and his word is what matters and what reveals whether you know God or not. And that's an unpopular message today, as it was when Jesus spoke it. And so he says, my people will be hated for this message. That there is a right way and a wrong way to respond. In the days of the apostles, some who called themselves Christians avoided persecution by simply adding Jesus to all the rites and ceremonies of the old covenant. But the apostles preached and they wrote clearly that you you can't simply add Jesus That Jesus supersedes all of the rites and rituals of the old covenant. The apostles proclaimed the exclusivity and the supremacy of Christ and they were hated for it. And the church was persecuted because of it. Likewise today, if, if Jesus is something that fits into your life in a small convenient corner, the world will have no problem with you. But then you too reveal that Like the world, you do not know him. Because if you knew him, if you knew God, his son would have all of you. Not just a convenient corner. And so, Christian, your response to Christ reveals whether you know God or not. That's what Jesus is confronting us with here. So kindly urging us to respond to him in faith and repentance. Now in verses 22 and 24, he he speaks of greater guilt. And it's quite clear in the scripture that some sins incur greater guilt and condemnation than others. That some sins are more heinous than others. In Matthew 11, Jesus condemns two or three cities in Israel for rejecting him. 
In spite of the works they had seen. He says, Matthew eleven twenty one. If these mighty works were done in you that had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Later, Jesus in John 19 says that the sin of the disciple who handed him over to Pilate is worse than Pilate's sin of ordering Jesus to be crucified. So some sins are worse than others. Well, here's another instance in which the Lord Jesus Christ asserts the sin of some people is greater than others. The Hebrews' rejection of Jesus brings with it greater condemnation than others who reject him. Why? Some have said that John is is just anti-Semitic. That John's gospel is anti-Semitic because of things like this and and things that we'll see later. Is Jesus anti-Semitic to saddle the Jews of his own day more than other people who reject the gospel? Well, no, that's absurd. The reason they incur more guilt is because they had greater opportunity, greater testimony to who Jesus was. They had the Old Testament scripture. They had Jesus performing signs and wonders in the sight of the Hebrews. He taught, he healed, he displayed the works of God who sent him. But all those works that confirmed Jesus' words only hardened the hearts of many in ethnic Israel against Christ. Think of, think of the one in particular in, in John 11. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Do you recall how the religious leaders of the Jews responded? Rather than praise God for the miracle that had been worked in their midst. And honor the prophet who performed this great sign. Rather than receive the words of the prophet. Which were vindicated by that sign. You remember what the religious leaders of the Jews do? They plot to kill Lazarus. They plot to kill the man who was miraculously raised from the dead. And so Jesus says here, in effect, they have no excuse for their sins. Others who did not see the signs, who did not hear Jesus preaching, they are without sin in that regard. Or they still have guilt in other areas, but in that regard, they are without sin. But the Hebrews of Jesus' day without excuse, their ignorance is willful, culpable, and malicious. They turned a blind eye to all God had done in Christ. And for that, they received greater condemnation. Because in that act, in their rejection of Christ, they show they not only hate Christ. But they hate his father. Now, what about us? We have not seen Christ. We have not heard him preach. We have not witnessed any of his signs and miracles. Is this, is this teaching then just irrelevant for us? Well, no, of course not. There's a principle here with very specific application to us here in, in what is sometimes called the Bible Belt. Where there's greater access to the truth of God's word. There's greater ap- uh, obligation to submit to Christ. To embrace Christ. To repent of sin and turn to Christ by faith. We have so many religious privileges here in the south. But those religious privileges, if they do not lead to repentance and faith, 
only compound our guilt and intensify it. We have great opportunity to know of God's salvation. And so we have no excuse if we fail to turn and receive that salvation. And those of us who fail to submit to God will receive a greater condemnation than those who had less opportunity. This is especially true for you covenant children. You have been baptized. You know, no one is, is saved by sprinkling or pouring a bit of water on them. But in baptism, we are showing forth the truth of the gospel and its promises that the covenant sign is a call to faith that just as water washes dirt away, so too the blood of Christ received by faith announced in the gospel washes sins away. And baptism, especially when administered to a covenant child, is a call to faith that that child will embrace the promises of the gospel that are proclaimed in the word every Lord's day and in the sacraments. And so you covenant children, you who have been baptized, but who have not yet made a profession in Christ, if you have heard the good news, if you have heard the gospel that Jesus saves those who turn from sin and cling to him, then you must come. You must turn from your sins. You must claim Christ. You must take hold of him. You must give up your rejection of Christ. You must give up your rebellion. And come to Christ. After all, we have all heard Christ speaking from heaven, haven't we? Hebrews 12, 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Christ, our Savior, speaks in his word by his spirit to us from heaven. Come to Christ. Receive his grace. Is there grace for those who reject Christ? You know, rejecting Christ is only the unforgivable sin as long as you persist in rejecting Christ. Christ, even even died for the priests who stood by and did nothing as he was nailed to the cross, but who later became obedient to the faith. So too, if you have have not yet claimed Christ, if you are rejecting Christ, come to him now. Maybe you've been coming to church, you've, you've been being religious, but you've never embraced Christ. You've, you've continued to make Christianity something that fills the gaps. Well, let me tell you, there's, there's grace for you, but you must claim it, you must receive it, you must embrace it. The covenant promises are true. Do you believe them? No matter how long you've been living in rejection of the gospel or indifference to the truth of Christ, that he is coming to judge the world even for every idle word, you must take refuge in him from the wrath that is coming into the world. Do you believe Christ's words? Have you come to him? And if you had come to him, he will not cast out. Come to Christ. There's one more thing here. 
Verse 25. Fulfilling the word. God's word proves true. Jesus is is telling us what will happen to his people in the future. We will be hated by the world. His people will be persecuted as as Jesus was. Some will receive our words, Christ's words, and, and many will not. Here again, Jesus says this must happen. It is necessary for this to happen in fulfillment of the scripture. The world's hostility to Christ, his people, and his gospel does not derail the plan of God. It was foretold. So don't be discouraged, Christian, in this a day of small things. When you are rejected by those who hate Christ. When you plead with your children or your friends to worship. To come to Christ. When you invite your neighbor to come and he refuses. Know that this does not stifle God's plan or God's gospel. But persist in testifying to God's power. His power to save. Because God is faithful. And he calls sinners to himself. But the Hebrews rejection of Christ. Jesus is speaking here specifically. Of the Hebrews. We know that because, because he says. It is written in their law. The Hebrews believed themselves very scrupulous about keeping the law. They considered themselves devoted to the law. The Pharisees, the pure, who murdered the Lord Jesus Christ, saw themselves as defenders and upholders of the law. Especially in the days of the apostles, Christians were denounced by the Hebrews as lawless. What does Jesus say here? It is is those scrupulous Hebrews who are the lawless ones. They hated me without a cause. The testimony of the scripture in both the Old and New Testaments is of ethnic Israel's consistent and willful failure to keep God's law. In fact, this is the only scripture The Hebrews have kept, isn't it? They hated me without a cause. Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 35, 19 or Psalm 69, verse 4, both of which have this phrase. The Hebrews hated Jesus without a cause. All of the hatred of the world is directed against one man, God in the flesh, who came to make a way for God to shower us with blessings, to, wake, to make a way for sinful, dead rebels to know the riches of God's grace and favor. And yet he was killed for that because God's riches and favor and blessing threaten mankind's autonomy. And lust. And so the Lord Jesus Christ warns his disciples, warns us that we who follow him will endure the same treatment he received rejection and hatred by the world because we represent him. And yet it is a small thing when we consider what is ours in Christ. Because of God's grace to sinners like us in Christ, we receive from the Father what the Lord Jesus deserved. We receive from God acceptance and honor and a home 
and an inheritance. All of which is signified and sealed to us on this table. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the mercy that you display for us in the bread and wine set before us. The mercy you promised to us in your word. Enable us to receive and embrace it. To receive and embrace Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen.